The Music Maker. Tom Walton is dead. I was shocked to read his obituary in the Times last week and then, that same night there was a concert on BBC Two which had as its main work his Ridgeway Round that delightful collection of West Country tunes and snatches bound together with that haunting theme which everyone knows and which features in so many jingles and TV adverts. Anyway, the next day sitting in the train from Bournemouth to Waterloo I overheard a woman chatting with a friend. She was talking of Tom and the theme I never did understand, she said why he allowed everyone to use it, why he agreed to a wholesale piracy of his work. That would have been the case if he had written it, but in fact, he did not, how do I know? Why he told me so and what follows is the tale he told. I had known Tom from childhood. We were boys together, went to school together, played in the same teams, did our national service at the same time and, when that was over our ways parted, he to devote himself to his music while I took to the law. The end result is that he is dead and I am alive, he is famous while I am not, however, knowing his story I do not think I would have liked to have gone through what he did to achieve fame. I would not call myself a coward you understand, I am very conscious, though, of the fact that I am much concerned with my own well-being, however, I digress. We went our different ways in 1948 and though I gradually became aware of the reputation he was gaining I did not see him again until some five years ago when he gave a concert at Poole and I went along to sit enthralled with the rest of the large audience. He played the round of course and when it was done and the curtain calls and applause were also over I crossed a couple of palms and bluffed my way backstage. I then sent word by a very doubtful member of the hall staff to inquire if he would see me. The same staff member hurried back to say he would. He did and we fell on each other's necks as old friends do and from his dressing room went to his hotel. We enjoyed a pleasant supper and then sat in the bar. We talked half the night discussing our affairs and life in general. I was keen to know how he got his ideas and composed the music which had made him a household name and he told me that for a long time he had had no original musical thought, then suddenly it seemed that he had been given a gift. It had concerned him at the time and as the event still disturbed him he had never told the story to anyone, but would I as an old friend like to hear it? telling it could help him to rationalize his feelings and possibly, help him to repay a debt to the past. I did not know what he meant by that, but what could I say? In any event this was the tale he told and I have tried hard to set it out just as it was given to me. At the time decimalization came in, this was evidently very important because he repeated it twice, he had not had a great deal of luck and was in fact living from hand to mouth getting brief engagements with small bands before ending in a dance band in Blackpool. He had hated the life he was living and either through worry or lack of food fell very ill, eventually collapsing on the stage in the middle of a show. An aunt of his who lived in Formby was called to his aid and he was taken to her home where she nursed him back to health. When he was fit again she urged him to leave the north and return to his own county. He was a Wessex man she said and should get back to where he belonged and there work out his own salvation and suggested that he concentrated on his music in the open air. Yes, she said excitedly, get out and about, roam the fields and the hills, play to the sheep, cattle and trees like the minstrels of old. Something is bound to come to you. She had, he said, a romantic nature, but taken by and large it was very good advice, and he decided to act on it, anyway, what could he lose? His aunt got his kid in order and made arrangements for him to stay with a friend of hers in Swanage, made him some sandwiches, gave him her blessing and saw him off on the train. As she said goodbye she passed an odd comment now they are bringing in this newfangled money keep an eye on your change and keep all those coins of 1947 and earlier as they have more silver in them. She then kissed him goodbye and the train moved away. Intrigued by his aunt's comment he checked his change and found that he had in it two Edward V.I. one Florence, one George V. Florin, two George VI shillings and one George VI sixpence, all within her dating and it occurred to him that it would be a nice gesture if he gave or sent her the coins, 
so he put them in the inside pocket in an old envelope. He said that while the journey was uneventful in itself he became aware of a rising sense of anticipation as it progressed. Of what he did not know and could not have said but it was there and he could not account for it, but it was a rising tide of indefinable excitement. His aunt's friend met him, made him welcome, fed him and ensured he was comfortable. The next day, in the early morning sunshine, he took his leave of her and, carrying only his old army small pack and his cased flute, set out on what was to be the most momentous walk of his life. He walked along the front and out of the town on the Studland Road turning left at the point where the old green road joined it in the form of a track leading to Corfe Castle and on to the west. He started to climb the hill and as he did so the thought came to him is there any way of knowing what the music of the really old people was like? Taken with the idea he got his flute out and as he slowly paced along tried a tentative note or two but he could just not get them together, although as he drew level with two burial mounds on the top of the ridge he thought he nearly had it. Whatever it was, it was gone again before he could fasten on it leaving him with a deep sense of frustration and a determination not to give up. Being so determined he climbed to the top of the nearest mound and sat cross-legged on the top holding his flute in readiness and then tried a few sets of scales and then a series of notes, gradually becoming convinced that there was something there if only he could bring it out. He finally attempted to set the notes to a simple dance tune and that seemed to be working when there was a sudden crash of summer thunder and seeing that a storm was on him he made his way at top speed to Corfe Castle where he got bed and breakfast at a small house near the church. Putting aside his kit and his flute he spent the evening concentrating on the hospitality of the nearby pub. He said that he did not know whether to blame the ale or the meat pies, but he spent a most unhappy and disturbed night. In his half-dreaming state the tune was there in his mind and he found he could hum it. He decided to get up and set it down, but when he attempted to put pencil to paper he found he could not move and he heard a voice saying, No if you want it you will have to go and get it. This happened more than once and when Dawn's light woke him in a sweat he could remember nothing of the tune except that it was spellbinding. The instruction given by the dream voice was, however, clear in his head, what he was meant to do about it was beyond him. What did he have to accomplish? Where did he have to go? He just did not have the slightest idea but hoped the answer would come to him. However, for the next week he worked his way slow but steadily towards the west eating when he was hungry and sleeping where he could and all the time trying to recapture that very elusive tune. He followed his aunt's suggestion. He roamed the woods, the hills, the lanes and the fields. He played to the sheep, the cows and the birds and the trees, to the trees themselves, the hedges and the bushes and came to the opinion that he was slowly going mad. He said that he knew he was making a fool of himself but could not bring himself to terminate what he knew was an idiotic pattern of behavior because something was driving him on more or less against his will. Then, suddenly, on another scorching hot day, with a rumble of thunder in the air and a storm brewing, he came to the town. He would not identify the town although I gathered it was really more of a large village and somewhere south and west of Dorchester, tucked away in the folds of the land. He stressed that as he left the open country and entered into the built-up area his incipient madness fell from him and he realized that he was thirsty, hungry, footsore and in need of a shave. Finding a pub he had a beer and spoke to the landlord getting his agreement to use a bathroom. After a clean-up and a change of shirt and socks he was down in the bar again for another beer and some food which he fell on as though he had not eaten for a week. He said that at this point he was hard put to know just what he was doing there and what his future intentions were. However the landlord was a friendly chap who provided a very good lunch during the course of which the storm broke and he was forced to stay in the pub till about 4pm. He realized that he could have stayed there that night but what he called his urge came on him again and he went out into the square and to the small information center on the other side of the road. Yes, the young woman in charge told him, many of the people here do bed and breakfast. Which way are you going? 
He told her that he really did not care as he was on a walking tour he would prefer a scenic route. The girl indicated a road that could be seen through the window and said try that one I am sure you will find it interesting and it leads directly to the west. He thanked her and, leaving the building, set out. As he stepped off the pavement he heard a shout, looked up and saw a single-decker bus heading straight for him in a cloud of puddle spray and a scream of brakes. He hurled himself to his left, tripped over the curb, rolled and came up against a wall. Stunned he looked back towards the bus and saw that it had stopped a little way from him with a group of people, including a police sergeant clustered by the front of it while the young woman from the information center was looking through the window with an expression of utter shock on her face, something had happened but what? However, whatever it was he did not want to get involved so he got up, collected his kit and set off along the road she had indicated. At once he was aware of a different quality in the air it was cleaner, crisper and somehow vibrant and there was a wealth of bird song. That is what he noticed first of all really, he could hear far more than he had ever noticed on a country walk before. The birds were not the only thing, for a lot had changed. The grass verges at the sides of the road seemed more colorful with wild flowers and the hedges were bursting with life he wondered about this and concluded that his senses had somehow been sharpened by the shock of his fall. He remembered stopping on hearing a noise at ground level off to his right and seeing a field mouse sitting up on its hind legs preening its whiskers and looking steadily at him, he exclaimed in delight and the little creature gave its whiskers a final twitch and suddenly made off, the sound of its progress through the grass clearly audible. He watched it depart with an acute sense of loss and then went on along the road which bent round to his right and there on the bend was a really magnificent oak tree, tall and sturdy. The trunk he thought about six or seven foot across and on one of the lower branches he was delighted and pleased to see a red squirrel, taking the sighting as a sign that the reds were making a comeback and again spreading through the country for he had read somewhere that they were only to be found in a few places including Brownsea Island where there was still a small colony. He walked on towards the oak and there, round the bend in the road, was the cottage. It was like a picture on a chocolate box or a calendar, brown cob walls, neat white door and window frames with two dormer windows peering out from under the thick thatch-like inquiring eyes that seemed to be asking questions of his identity and business. The front gate was also painted white and from it a stone-slabbed path led to the door and a rustic wood porch through a very model of a country garden that was awash with colour and scent. As he admired it his eye was taken by a hand-painted sign which read bed and breakfast three backslash six. He smiled at it and the behind-the-times country folk who took no notice of decimalization, but then he thought it was probably an old sign, although it looked new, and three shillings and sixpence, even in the old money, was a reasonable price for a night's lodging. He was also feeling tired and another distant rumble of thunder decided him. He walked down the path and knocked at the door. It was opened by a pleasantly smiling woman who seemed to be in her middle or late forties. Her light brown hair was done up in a bun, she wore a floral apron and there were smears of flour on her arms. She tilted her head inquiringly, he nodded back towards the sign and said I wonder if you have a room? Oh yes, she said and, standing aside, indicated that he should enter a room on his right. It was a comfortable and well-furnished sitting room. She followed him in and told him that he should put his stuff down and then she would show him the guest room. As he swung his pack off his shoulder she nodded at it and said are you in the forces then? No, not now. I see. Perhaps you have been invalided out as so many have. She nodded again, as if seeing of his recent illness in his face. She then smiled warmly. Come along, follow me up. Leaving his kit, he followed her out of the room again and up the stairs, which faced the front door, to a short landing and into a room which opened off it and which he found was the left-hand upper room and through the dormer window he could see the front gate and the garden through which he had walked. He said that he liked the room and that he wanted to stay. She then told him to bring his things up while she got him some hot water. 
It was then that he noticed the old-fashioned washstand with its basin and ewer. It was, he said, somewhat primitive but it did not seem to matter, and a little while later when he went back down to the sitting room he was congratulating himself on his luck. His hostess produced a pot of tea and introduced herself as Mrs. Molly Baker. She said that her husband Tom would be home in a little while and would he, in the meantime, make himself comfortable and please excuse her as she had some things to finish off in the kitchen. It really was a nice comfortable room and clearly well used, he noticed a harmonium in one corner with a violin case lying on top of it and on a small table, near to it, was a pile of sheets which appeared to be music and which on examination were not only found to be music but handwritten sheets at that. Intrigued he began to examine some and found it fascinating for he had never seen or heard of the music before but the titles of the pieces caught his imagination and he remembered his feelings as he walked down the road and listened to the bird song. There was the cricket's trill, the blackbird serenade, the sparrow's chirp he really liked that one, and a whole host of others. He was suddenly aware that Mrs. Baker had come back into the room and, ashamed of being caught prying started to stammer out an apology which she cut short saying that's all right Mr. Walton, you do play yourself and my Tom won't mind. He wrote it all you know, please look at it to your heart's content. With that she left him and he began looking at the scores again and as he went through the pile he caught himself wondering how she had known his name, he was certain he had not told her but then it did not seem very important and he concentrated on what he was doing, enjoying every moment of it. Convinced that he had made the fine of a lifetime, a very treasure trove of music. The scores absorbed his interest until the light began to fade and Mrs. Baker came in with a lamp and told him that supper was ready in the other room and that Tom was home. He followed her into the room across the passageway where a round table had been laid with enough knives, forks, spoons and various items of crockery that there seemed to him to be more than enough for a banquet. Standing on the other side facing him was a chubby merry-faced man who was introduced as Tom, this done Mrs. Baker told them to sit down and then she served them all. He said he could not remember much about the meal, it took a long time and was very good. They seemed to drink a lot of tea and when at last it was done they all three turned their backs on the debris of it and went into the other room where the bakers urged him to take the chair he had sat in before while they settled in others, near the harmonium. When all three were comfortable there began what was for him one of the most wonderful conversations he had ever taken part in his life. They talked music, not the music of the famous composers, the fine orchestras and the big bands, rather the music of the countryside, their countryside, the men and women who had composed it and played it, the instruments that had made it. They talked of ages past as though they were yesterday and men and women long gone as though they were living next door and were family friends of whom they had personal knowledge. One such was named as Amius Tyler who had played a gittern and sailed with Drake. Tom Baker spoke very fondly of him and hinted that he had helped to compose some of the music that they had looked at. This was beyond Tom and he said that in fact the whole thing had started to get a little overwhelming at this stage and take on the aspects of a dream. However, there was no hint of the baker's dreaming or of either of them being on the edge of madness, which was the next thought that crossed his mind, but he did not entertain that for long because he had conceived a hearty respect for the way in which traditions were maintained in that part of England and when his hostess said rather shyly we usually play ourselves in the evenings and now you are here with your flute we were wondering if you would join us so that we could have a trio. What could he say? Mrs. Baker bustled off to fetch his flute and then seated herself at the harmonium while the other Tom tuned up his fiddle and that Dunn stood with it under his chin with his bow poised and then, sure they were ready said right then let's start with one we all know and love green sleeves and at once started in on it. It was a bit of a ragged start for Tom but he picked it up and got on with it following Tom Baker's lead. They all three played what Tom later called a collection of good old ones and then, as if by mutual agreement, stopped for a rest and Tom got his host to tell him of his own compositions. He called them these and was at once corrected by Tom Baker who said no. 
No I did not compose them I only wrote them down. Most of them are old tunes, much older than me by far. Indeed the origins of some are lost but while there is someone who knows them they will never be lost themselves and they will continue to be played or whistled by someone somewhere and bring joy to people. Tom told me that then Mr. Baker pulled the small table into the middle of the room and raised the top so that it came up like a music stand with the sheets of music on it this done he again picked up his fiddle and began to play while Mrs. Baker turned the sheets for him one by one the meanwhile looking fixedly at Tom as though she were willing him to mark and learn the tunes in this, he tried to do. The recital must have lasted a considerable length of time but Mr. Baker, wrapped up in his music did not flag or falter and Tom said that he just sat semi-mesmerized until Mrs. Baker said there then that was really nice Tom my dear. Her husband who stood poised on the last note held his position for a little while and then, turning to Tom, said well Mr. Walton what do you think of them? Tom said that he replied most emphatically that the tunes were both haunting and lovely that he had never heard any of them before and that he doubted if he would ever hear them again. At this both the bakers laughed at him and said that they were certain that he would. You have the touch you see, Molly, said and her husband agreed and then said that as they usually ended their duets with a hymn and they would do the same now if he agreed, Tom did and off the cuff proposed that the hymn should be now thank we all our God. Molly Baker said delightedly that is what we would have suggested, we always play it did you know that? Tom shook his head and on that the hymn was played not once but three times with what he described as great joy and feeling and when this was done and the room put to rights Tom went to his bed. His room was lit by a candle and as he sat in its yellow light looking through the uncurtained window at the moon and the tree swaying in the slight wind a sudden recollection came to his mind and a thought that had been nagging away at him since Tom Baker started to play his pieces suddenly became real, yes, here it was, the wind susurration had revealed that all those tunes had the same underlying theme and he could now remember it clearly it was the same one that had nearly come to him as he had sat on the burial mound. Quick he said to himself. I must set it down. A frantic search through his kit revealed a pencil stub but no note paper and he was in a sudden panic, what am I going to write it on? Desperately he cast around and then had a flash of inspiration, there was the envelope he had put the coins in for his aunt. It was still where he had put it in his inside jacket pocket, and it was the work of a moment to transfer the coins and open up the envelope and note down the theme and all the variations he could recall. Then this done, he put the paper into the reed pocket of his flute case, his possessions in order, got into bed, blew out the candle and slept soundly. The bird chorus awoke him to a brilliant sunny day and as he lay in bed, comfortable and contented and wondering if he had dreamed at all, there came a tap on the door and Mrs. Baker asked if she could come in. I hope you slept well Mr. Walton. I have brought some hot water. Will breakfast in 15 minutes suit you? Tom said that he had and that he would be down for breakfast directly. As soon as she had left his room went at once to see if his note was still where he had put it, finding it safe he prepared for the day. He took his kit downstairs and left it by the front door while he had his breakfast which was, he recalled, a fine one and he said that he was very, very hungry as though he had not eaten for a week. He inquired after Mr. Baker and was told that he had already left. I am sorry to have missed him, I would have liked to have seen him again and to thank you both for a grand time, I would not have missed it for the world. Mrs. Baker told him not to worry and added that if he was going to be in the district she was sure they would meet again. He then finished his last cup of tea and picking up his pack and flute said that he would like to pay what he owed. Certainly Mr. Walton, three shillings and sixpence if you please. Are you sure? It seems so little for all you have done for me. Thank you but it's quite enough. It is my usual charge. He put his hand into his pocket and took out the handful of change and in the hope that she would accept more, proffer the whole of it to her. 
She looked at it in puzzlement and sorted through it pushing aside the decimal coins and the early Elizabeth II ones and then selected an Edward VII and a George V florin saying as she did so, and indicating the rejected coin said, I would get rid of that foreign stuff Mr. Walton, you could make a mistake with that. She then turned to the hat stand beside her and took a purse from it and put the florins in it and took another coin out which she gave to him saying that it was his change. It was a George V sixpence. He dropped this into his right-hand coat pocket, said his goodbyes and walked out of the door. She asked him where he was heading and he said that he did not really mind, he was on a walking tour after all. She suggested that he turned right outside the gate and then follow the road for a mile or so until he came to a small side road on the left with a notice that read to the church. She told him that he should see the church as it was very interesting, parts of it were claimed to be Saxon and it was dedicated to the patron saint of musicians, Saint Cecilia. He thanked her again and set off. He had not gone far before he realized that the air contained the same clear quality that he had experienced the day before for he had the same awareness of bird song and animal movement and it seemed to him once again that he was in a different world from the one he had known and grown up in. He was trying to get to grips with the idea and fully understand it when he came to the small side road. It was really little more than a track but there was a sign pointing off to the left that read the Church of St. Cecilia, 1-4 mile. He turned off the road and onto the track. For the first hundred yards or so it ran between high hedgerows and then, suddenly, the ground opened up in front of him and he saw the church standing still and peaceful in its own quiet churchyard which was an unusual one for there was an earthen bank running round it while the church itself was on a slight mound. He saw that the bank transcribed a circle and that the mound was in the middle of it. He was puzzled for a while and then understood what he was looking at. The Church of St. Cecilia was built in the center of an ancient earthwork and he remembered seeing a similar one near Wimborne some years earlier. He followed the bank round until he came to the church gate, a well-constructed wooden one set in stone block pillars, inside the gate was a large spreading oak tree and he stood under this for a while taking in the peaceful scene to the extent that it was photographed on his memory, he said that he noted that there was an extensive area between himself and in the church before there were any graves and the grass was short as though a flock of sheep had grazed on it. Deciding that he might as well look at the church he walked up the path to the porch and found that he agreed with Mrs. Baker that parts of the church were most definitely Saxon and the lower courses certainly seemed to be, while there was a very fine Norman porch the arch of which carried a frieze of quaint stone figures who were clearly playing musical instruments. He studied these for some time wondering if they were the reason for the church name and then paused because he suddenly felt an overpowering reluctance to enter the church. He said that for a moment he was most definitely frightened but then told himself that he was being a fool, pulled himself together, and went in. Inside all was still and dim and after his eyes became accustomed to the gloom he went on a tour of inspection and was impressed by what he saw for it was a very well-kept church with the air of being loved, if a building can be loved, but the congregation clearly spent a lot of time on it. The church was beautifully clean and polished and he remembered being very impressed with the kneelers which were all worked in wool with, on each, a different picture of an instrument, a musician or a musical score. By this time his trepidation had left him and feeling calm and serene he decided to sit down for a little while and soak in the atmosphere. He told me that at this time he was convinced that something big was going to happen and he could feel inspiration coming on so, choosing a pew by a pillar, he sat down facing the altar and placed his pack by his feet and tried to relax. He waited, he did not know what for, but something told him to wait so he did. He started to get sleepy and to nod off coming to suddenly with a jerk when he heard the sound of music, the sound of a harmonium and, as he listened, the sound grew and he could distinguish other instruments also. The tune that was being played was now Thank We All Our God and it was coming from near the altar where a light mist was beginning to form and thicken. 
The church was starting to get very cold and the mist was now filled with swirling shadow shapes and then he saw the harmonium and playing it was Mrs. Baker. A bolt of fear shot through him and he sat upright and made to get up and get out but he could not leave his seat. He stared at Mrs. Baker. How had she got there? She had not been there when he sat down and she had certainly not passed him on the way, perhaps she had arrived after him and entered the church while he was nodding off? Yes that was it, he had not noticed her come in. Then he saw that she was not alone her husband was there as well with his fiddle bowing and scraping away like one possessed and the tune had changed. It was no longer a hymn. He recognized it, as the wild melody, a hint of which had come to him as he had sat on the burial mound on the hills. It was the tune of his dreams at Corf Castle and he was by now really frightened, but he still could not move from his seat. He realized that the bakers were both looking at him fixedly as though they were willing him to come and join us, bring your flute and play with us. You liked playing with us last night come on and enjoy yourself again. It was the last thing he wanted to do and he exerted his utmost willpower to resist the influence he could feel enfolding him. In spite of himself his hands moved towards his flute, he forced them back to his sides and at once broke out into a sweat brought on by the exertion in order to break the spell he put his hand into his right hand jacket pocket and pulled out his handkerchief and, as he did so, he heard something light fall to the floor with a tinkle. He remembered the sixpence but could not be bothered to pick it up because he looked towards the altar once again and what he saw nearly made him faint away because the bakers had been joined by others, all musicians and they were all playing different instruments. He told me that it was like a pageant of music through the ages starting at the present with the bakers and going back into the past. There was a Victorian girl with what appeared to be a tambourine, a man in a wig and a full-skirted coat playing a cello, he recognized a sailor of Nelson's time playing a tin whistle. There were men and women in Tudor and Stuart costume with an assortment of lutes, recorders and small drums and one gallant chap had a gittern, he knew what it was for he had seen the one in the British Museum that had belonged to the Earl of Essex. At this point he remembered what Tom Baker had said and nearly yelled out hello there Amius but somehow he knew that he had to remain silent and sit still, this is not the time, this is not the time an unspoken warning rang in his brain time and time again. He tried to look away from the altar, but found he could not, his eyes were fixed on it and there the picture was changing. All the figures were beginning to get misty and merged together and then he saw that the mist was coming from a point directly in front of him towards the center of the altar and to his horrified eyes the mist formed into a huge human arm and hand in which was what he could only describe as a primitive sistrum. It looked, he said, like a long green twig bent into a loop and across this there were a number of strings or cords with shells, stones and pieces of horn which rattled together as the arm shook the sistrum so that the sound of it merged with that of the band and, in the meanwhile, the hand and arm continued to grow while the mist took on the shape of a gigantic man into which all the other figures flowed. At last forming the shape of a very large and very solid-looking creature dressed in skins and wearing on its head what Tom took to be the horns of a red deer. The sistrum kept rattling and the figure pointed it towards Tom who felt the last of his willpower collapse. He was, he said, now terrified out of his wits not only because of what he had seen and heard and the giant figure's obvious notice of him but because the church itself had gone and he was out in the open air. He was crouched down on his heels facing a round grassy mound on which the horned figure gyrated and shook. He was shivering in an icy wind and grey and black clouds pressed down on him and he felt that he was alone with a primitive god at the dawn of time. He wanted to flee but there was nowhere to run. Anyway, he was frozen with terror. With a quiet prayer, he gave himself up for lost and he found himself slipping round and down so that he fell onto his pack and flew. It was at this point he was saved by the elements, for once again thunder came into the tail. There was a mighty ear-splitting crash and a blaze of lightning which enveloped the figure and the mound. Then there was another mighty rumble in the heavens and the spell was broken, he snatched up his kit and ran blindly. 
In his panic he missed his footing, fell headlong and all went black. He came to in a bed, a comfortable bed and, by the fact that a nurse was looking down at him, a hospital bed. He had a vile headache and was aware of the fact that he had a bandage or similar dressing round his head, otherwise he felt well enough. The nurse smiled at him and took his pulse then she called doctor and a middle-aged chap came up to the bed and stood looking down at him. You have come back to us have you? Lord you gave us a fright we wondered if you would ever come round. He then busied himself with the bandage before continuing, just stay there and if you can get to sleep so much the better. When you wake up we will feed you, and by the way the police are looking after your property. I will ask the office to let them know you have come to, and before you say where am I? You are in the cottage hospital. Surprisingly he went back to sleep and must have slept for a long time because when he woke again it was clearly early morning and he found himself caught up in the day's routine, he washed and borrowed a razor and then had some breakfast. He was starved, and was told that after the doctor had seen him he would most likely be allowed to leave. He was sitting up in bed reading an old magazine when a police sergeant came. Tom recognized him as the one he had seen by the bus when he had had his near accident. The policeman had Tom's kit with him and now was clearly the time to ask questions but before he could do so the sergeant spoke, my goodness you were lucky. I thought that bus had killed you. What bus? What are you saying happened to me? I vaguely remember a bus of some sort but not in any detail. Well you walked out of the information center and into the front of a bus that was pulling up and the bus knocked you down. When was this? Two days ago. Can't you remember anything at all? Tom said that he thought hard and decided to accept the situation as it was and not as he had thought it had been so he replied. No I don't but hopefully it will all come back as soon as I am on my way again, I am really lucky that there is nothing broken. The sergeant agreed, got him to sign for his property, and bade him farewell and left. Within the hour Tom had been declared fit, given his clothes and told he could leave. He did and managed to get a lift from the hospital to the town square, to where it had all started. Yes there was the information center, there was the bus stop and there was the road he had taken. He took it again. He had to, of course, he could just not go away without trying to explain it all. He did not know what had happened, but he just had to find out. The answer he was sure could be found at the cottage. He would see the bakers. It wasn't the same. The air was different, it lacked crispness and clarity. The birds did not seem to be singing as much for all that it was a remarkably fine day. He also noticed that there was less color in the verges, many of the wild flowers that had so delighted him seemed to be missing entirely. The road though followed the course he remembered and he began to hum odd notes and snatches that he quickly realized that he was repeating the tunes he had heard Tom Baker play. He began to get excited and hurried on. Yes. There was the bend and the old oak tree. The cottage was just out of sight. He broke into a run and rounded the bend only to stop dead. The cottage was not there. He could see an old gate post and what might have been the remains of a path, but no cottage, nothing but a depression in the ground and a few grass-grown bumps. He was staring at this in some bewilderment when a voice spoke behind him, Can I help you? He turned and saw a man in his early sixties, he thought, looking at him questioningly. Yes, I thought there was a cottage here. I once, but not for forty years or more. Are you sure? The man looked at Tom pityingly before replying, Of course I am. It belonged to my aunt and uncle. It was destroyed by a German bomb the day I left to join the army. Called up I was, now that would have been in June 1942. They were both in it at the time and were found dead in the rubble with their arms around each other. Was their name Baker? The nephew regarded him with suspicion. How did you know that? Tom persisted, we are talking about Mr. Tom Baker, the well-known local musician? I am a musician myself, you see, and have heard of him, 
he then added almost as an afterthought, and his music. The man's face cleared, that's right. They were both well known locally and loved as well. They were very active in village life on the parish council, members of the choir and well known for their good works through the church. He used to play his violin in church and often wrote special music to accompany wedding and funeral services. Music that seemed to reflect the people it was written for. He wrote a lot of music, you know. I remember that he had sheets of it, but it is all gone now. The bomb saw to that. I don't think it's all gone, Tom said, and seeing the other's dubious expression continued, just listen. He took out his flute and after a hesitant start he played what he could remember of the sparrow's chirp. The man's face lit up. Yes that is one of old Tom's. Where on earth did you hear it? I used to come down this way when I was a boy. That would explain it. You probably heard someone hum it. Memories do linger on don't they? They carried on chatting for a while before Tom asked where they were buried. The man told him that their grave was in the local churchyard so Tom thanked him and wishing him a good day before continuing along the lane towards the church. It was as he had remembered it except there seemed to be more graves in the churchyard. Inside the gate and to the left was the spreading oak tree but now, under it, was a white headstone. He walked over and read the inscription. In loving memory of Thomas Baker and his wife Molly who died together 22 asterisk 6 asterisk 1942. This stone was raised by their many friends and those they helped and in gratitude for their love and many kindnesses. Now thank we all our God. Tom said that he stood by the grave for a long time trying to decide what it was all about. It was all very difficult, but he did understand that there was something he had to do. He walked to the church and entered. It was the same church. He put his pack down in the same spot he had before and with his flute in his hand walked round. It was all the same from the high state of polish to the woolen kneelers. There were two exceptions, there was no harmonium and, thankfully, no terrible horned figure. He stood in front of the altar quietly remembering it all on the recollection looked into the reed pocket of his flute case and saw the envelope. It was then that he decided to play and for the bakers played now thank we all our God and then for the three of them a medley of old Tom's tunes. He finished at last and as he turned away thought, for a moment, that he could hear ghostly applause. When he picked up his pack he saw glinting on the stone flags, a sixpence. He knew then that he had been given temporary stewardship, but not ownership of Tom Walton's music. It was a precious trust and he decided there and then to make the music freely available to all who would use it and, in that way, ensure that no one could ever limit its circulation. It would be totally wrong to take financial advantage of the great privilege he had been given. He also added rather quietly that he would not want to let Tom Baker down or betray his trust in any way at all. Not ever. Copyright 2019 Robert War. All original rights reserved. Thank <laughs> you.